Once you know Jesus, I do believe that is the condition of our soul. We'd rather have him than have everything else or anything else. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 this morning. And I'm not going to read all those verses, just a portion of it now, but we'll study all through Mark 6, verses 1 through 6 this morning. So here's how it begins. He, that's Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, and I pray now as we study your word that we're attentive to it. Uh, We've not come to examine the word. We believe in humility. The word examines us. Uh, So help us. That's what we pray in humility. Help us hear what we need to hear. Understand what we need to understand. Uh, Be corrected in the ways that we may need to be corrected. And more than anything else, help us to see Jesus clearly, completely, uh, and in seeing him, to see our need of him, And seeing him see what you've really provided for our need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, you may be seated. Uh, One of the really helpful things of studying the Bible verse by verse through a book. So we started in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll go all the way through the end of the Gospel of Mark as we can see things in context. So in recent Sunday morning studies, two things have been going on simultaneously. One, Jesus has been doing some amazing works. Amen. Uh, He's been demonstrating some miraculous authority and power. In recent weeks, we've seen Jesus in the midst of a chaotic storm that the disciples thought were going to sink them in the boat that he speaks and the storm ceases. He steps out of the boat and steps onto shore and is immediately met there by a demoniac, one who's consumed by demons. And Jesus, in the midst of darkness, brings light and healing. And then he gets back in the boat, goes back across the sea, and is met there by a woman with an issue of bleeding. Nothing she did helped her physical condition. And yet when she reached out in faith to Jesus, he healed her immediately and completely. And then that culminated, all these problems people were dealing with, disasters, demons, and disease, culminated with the death of a child. Here's a man, Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. This man of great influence has a problem he can't deal with. And friends, it's only a matter of time until you deal with something or face something that you in of of yourself can't handle. And Jesus steps into the room and raises that little girl from death to life. So he's been doing amazing things, calming storms, casting out demons, healing disease, and raising the dead to life. Now, while he's been doing that, here's the interesting thing. All the while, he's been consistently criticized. Remember the disciples in the boat? While the storm is raging, do you not care that we're perishing? In the garrisons, when Jesus brought light into that dark place, do you remember the response of the villagers? We're so glad you're here, Jesus. No, that's not what they say. What do they say? Begged him to leave. We please get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. And then even the woman who was healed of the issue of bleeding, when Jesus turned attention on her, remember what it said? She's scared and trembling. And I believe what that means is when he turned his gaze upon her, her assumption is, oh, he's not going to like what I've done because I was unclean. I reached out and touched him. The law told me I'm not supposed to do that. She's projecting on him something about his character that's actually not true. She she thought he was going to condemn her, but he's not. His daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he's on the way to the house of Jairus, whose daughter has, has, has died, someone comes from his house and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. Again, the assumption was Jesus might be able to help the girl when she's sick, but now this is beyond him. So his power questioned. Two things have been going on. Jesus has been demonstrating great authority over everything that troubles us. And yet, even as he does so, consistently criticized. His motives questioned. His character misaligned. His actions criticized. 
And that's been happening everywhere he goes. So we're going to Mark 6, and as we just read, he's going to go to his hometown. Now here's, I think, part of what we would want to understand as we study through the Gospel of Mark. If there's one place that Jesus could go to where he wouldn't be criticized, where they wouldn't put up the hands and say, we don't want you around here, you might think it would be his hometown. But he goes to Nazareth. And let's read what happens. We read up to the portion of verse 2, so pick up there. After they heard him teaching, many were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. They took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. Where Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz famously said, there's no place like home. Well, this statement takes a whole new meaning when Jesus returns to Nazareth. I mean, here's what we all have in common. We've all come from somewhere, right? Some of you are from the country. And some of you are really from the country. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're so far in the country that you're like, the other people who say they're from the country, that's not really the country. I'm from the country. Some of us from the city. We've all come from somewhere. What kind of place was it that you grew up in? I mean, we all grew, grew up in a place that the people around there know you. They know about you. They knew you when you were knee-high to a grasshopper, so to speak, right? I mean, uh, you, you come from a certain place. Well, Nazareth is where Jesus is from. You know about Nazareth? There's more people in this room right now than lived in Nazareth at that time. A little place, tiny place, a place that everybody knew everybody. It's not a glamorous place. It's a little village. In fact, people from little villages look down on Nazareth. You remember what Nathaniel said when Philip talked to him in the Gospel of John? They're from Bethsaida. Not exactly a glamorous place. And they said, or well, uh, specifically Nathaniel said, when, uh, <laughs> when Philip said, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And this is the little nowhere place where Jesus grew up. It's where he lived, and everyone in that place knew him. There's no economic prosperity in Nazareth. There's no political power in Nazareth. There's no prestige in Nazareth. And the God who controls all things went and lived there. I think we should all remember this when we think about what it really means to love and serve people. We should think about this. Think about all the places that Jesus went that underscores his amazing humility. He wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. They didn't have any room for him there, did they? Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of King Herod had put out the census. Now everybody's got to return to the... Uh, to the town of your forefathers. That's why Jesus was going to Bethlehem. That's why Mary is far from home when she's great with child, as Luke tells us. And when he was born, no place for him in the inn. So what did they do with baby Jesus? They laid him in a feeding trough, y'all, right? And sometimes we're so familiar with the story, we don't understand the humility of this. The king of creation has come to earth, and when he's born, he's laid in a trough that they would feed the animals in. The majority of his earthly life was spent in poverty-stricken Nazareth, working in that village, as we're told here, as a carpenter. So when Jesus came, he did not dwell in the royal rooms of Rome, right? He didn't pontificate in the palaces of power in Athens. He didn't even spend the majority of his time teaching in the temple of Jerusalem. He spent the vast majority of his time living among the ordinary and the poor in Nazareth. Like what J.C. Ryle says in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, 
We see how humble was the rank of life which our Lord condescended to occupy before he began his public ministry. The people of Nazareth said of him in contempt, Is this not the carpenter? Now this is a remarkable expression only found here in the Gospel of St. Mark. It shows us plainly that for the first 30 years of his life, our Lord was not ashamed to work with his own hands. There's something marvelous and overwhelming in this thought. He who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that therein is, he without whom nothing was made that was made, the Son of God himself took on the form of a servant. Though he was rich, he became poor. Both in life and in death, he humbled himself that through him sinners might live and reign forevermore. So the next time a little silly, sinful thought creeps into your mind that I'm too good to do this. I'm too good to do the laundry. I'm too good to do wash feed. Whatever it might be, you just remember Jesus for 30 years in obscurity, loving and serving in great humility. Like Jesus, let's make sure we've got the right metric for what success and living a life of value and significance really means it's about loving and serving others and here's a big take home even when they don't appreciate you some of us need to be liberated from this right here Uh, people around here just need to appreciate me a little bit more well be like christ and live for the truth that the father knows about you rather than what the neighbors might think about you Because when Jesus gets to Nazareth, he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, and they're offended by him. So if we cannot love and serve right in our own hometown, right where we live, right now, I'll tell you this, you'll never really love and serve. Sometimes we think, I'll really love and serve when I'm more appreciated. No, you won't. I'll love and serve when the position I hold is a little bit more glamorous. No, you won't. (laughs) If you can't, as they say, bloom where you're planted, you'll not bloom at all. And let's see this very clearly. You might very well love and serve. Now, when Jesus, you might not love and serve and be esteemed for it. Now, when it says here in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1, he went away and there came to his hometown. What wrong was anybody in that town able to say of him? Nothing. Who in that town could ever say, well, he really sinned against me? Nobody. But they're offended by him. You you would think that when Jesus returns to Nazareth, the result would be a celebration. But instead, there's no celebration. There's only criticism and condemnation. By the time we're here in Mark 6, Jesus has been involved in his earthly ministry for a while. I mean, uh, a little estimate is about a year has gone on that he's been teaching and preaching. I'll put a couple of uh, pictures on the screen. This first one is uh, San Francisco at the end of World War II. That's a celebration, right? And the war's over. Victory's been won. And when the troops come home, celebration, right? Whole city turns out. And, and, and here's the next one, another celebration just a couple of weeks ago. Look at that. Tens of thousands of people turn out for the eternally significant matter of, well, it's been 50 years since we won the Super Bowl around here. And the whole city turns out. And now you contrast this with the king who's really going to bring true victory and the triumph that really matters, he returns. This is the carpenter's son. Isn't this Mary's boy? Now here's the deal. As Jesus returns to Nazareth, he's rejected. And we're seeing here, he came to his own, but his own received him not. We're going to talk about why in a moment. But it basically comes down to this. When Jesus does not fit their view of what he should be and who he should be, they reject him. Here's just a lesson about the world we live in. People are typically fine with Jesus so long as they can define him. But the moment he begins to say, this is who I am, that's when the rejection happens. When he proclaims who he truly is, there's often rejection. 
So let's start. If you've got an outline, we'll start with this first point. Jesus received criticism throughout his ministry, but his critics never shoved him off course. Jesus received criticism throughout his ministry, but his critics never shoved him off course. So again, we've been studying through the gospel of Mark. And in previous chapter, chapter 5 in particular, here's the criticism from those who know him well, the disciples in the boat, when things take a turn for what they think is the worst. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Call his character and his concern into question. And it's common for us when we face difficult circumstances to project upon God a lack of concern. He's just up there in the heavens. He doesn't care a lick about us. And the Gerasenes, it's recorded that they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They don't want him around. They don't want their, his influence in their town. And as we've alluded to, even over the welcoming crowd, there's criticism from the woman with the issue of bleeding. Oh, I think he's coming after me to condemn me. And why trouble the teacher any further? Can we, can we talk about what these statements are? You don't care. You're not wanted. You're not able to do anything. You don't care. You're not wanted. You're unable to do anything. What is this? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. It's what we're talking about today, the devastating consequences of unbelief. Unbelief about his character. Unbelief about his actions. Unbelief about his power. Unbelief about him. Now, if you've got your Bible open, let's look at a few verses. In the midst of this unbelief, what's Jesus doing? Well, let's just read a sample of verses so you can pick up on what he's doing. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, in, uh, had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met a man. Look at Mark 5, 21. Jesus crossed again in the boat, to the other side, a great crowd gathered. Look at verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his home, hometown. And the end of verse 6, he went about. I just read those verses so you can just see that Jesus keeps moving. He keeps going. At what point in all of this criticism does it say Jesus threw up his hands and quit? Now listen to me very carefully. Jesus never quits. We just read those sequence of verses. He's going here, then he's going there. Friends, ultimately, where is he going? He's going to the cross. That's what I mean when I said he's going to receive criticism throughout his ministry, but his critics never shove him off course. Most everybody that you know is prone to quitting. Some of you, that's your life, just truth be told. Somebody that you trusted tore your soul in two because they quit. Where do we get this from? You know where we get this from? All the way back there to Adam, the original quitter. Adam, keep this garden, protect it, defend it. Serpent enters the garden. What does Adam do? Quits quits. Some of you know the pain of who you trusted walking out. Some of you know the pain of throw up his hands and he left. Now, all of Adam's sons are prone to quit. It's just true. It'd be devastating, can't it? Somebody you really relied on, hoped in, trusted, proved unreliable and untrustworthy. That's why I need you to hear me say this. Jesus doesn't quit. Criticized all the time. Quit? Never. Now, on the flip side of this, maybe you're the one who quit. Maybe you are sitting here today, by God's grace you're present, just so you can hear me say this. Maybe you're the one who walked out. Maybe you're the one who proved unreliable. And we're reading 
from Mark chapter 6. And what I want you to know is Mark was a quitter too. Jesus doesn't quit on quitters. How about that? Because here's what the enemy will do to you, and he does it again and again and again. You need to quit. You need to quit. You need to quit. Then you quit. Guess what he'll do? I can't believe you quit. You are sorry, no good. Your life is worthless. That's who the enemy is. He's a liar. He lies to you and says when you need to stand, you need to quit. He says when you need to stand firm, you need to walk out. And then you do it, and then your whole life is now eaten up with regret. You need to know that Jesus is going to the cross and he's not going to quit. And Jesus can transform those who have quit. You go and read about John Mark in the book of Acts. And when Paul was really counting on him, it says of John Mark, he withdrew. What does that mean? Walked out. Left the gospel ministry. But God didn't quit on him. And God restores him, redeems him. Some of you need to know that God puts broken things back together. Jesus doesn't quit. Jesus doesn't quit. Secondly, we'll see here from this passage, the people who should have known him best criticized him most harshly. The people who should have known him best criticized him most harshly. Now, what are they criticizing him about? Well, we should know this. The criticism is always about his teaching. As long as Jesus is healing folks, nobody ever criticized him for healing their sickness. Nobody ever criticized him. I can't believe you raised my daughter from the dead. Nobody's ever said anything like that. As long as Jesus would help them physically, they were good with it. But it was his teaching that offended. Now, we're here in Mark 6. And it says in verse 2, On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now, what we have here is the fact that he teaches, but we don't have what he taught, right? So I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We'll get a little help here from the good Dr. Luke on the content of his teaching. So what is it that he said when he was in Nazareth? You'll see there in uh, Luke 4, verse 16. For in the Gospel of Mark, one book over, the next book in the sequence there would be, would be Luke. Uh, Luke 4, 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and, said, uh, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, just real quick, if you continue to read that, at first they seem excited, but as it gets clear what he's really talking about, they get offended, astonished. Do you think Jesus is a trustworthy teacher? So here's a little sub-sermon in this sermon. Here's the three markers of Jesus' teaching. And you can use Jesus as a model for you to discern what's trustworthy teaching. Number one, I've got three things, usually the case with preachers, right? Three things. Number one, Jesus taught the scriptures. Amen? Jesus taught the scriptures. This is amazing. The Bible says Jesus is the word become flesh. So that's, a, that's an amazing day to stand in the synagogue. The word become flesh, reading the word. Amen? So just real quick, I would encourage you on this. When you're listening to teaching, how long does it take to, for that teacher to get to the scripture? It's from this understanding that, that I've just taken for our habit, Every time I stand to preach, the first thing I ask you to do, stand up, let's hear the scripture. So you don't need my opinions, this truth be told. You don't need my humorous stories, because I don't have but about four. You don't need to hear from me. You really don't. But you do need to hear from the scripture. The first thing is Jesus teaches the scripture. 
Number two, Jesus speaks to the reality of the human condition. Do you know what the reality of the human condition is, spiritually speaking? We are poor, oppressed, blind, captives. Spiritually, we are dead. So one, Jesus speaks from the scriptures. Two, he speaks about our true condition. The Bible describes us accurately. The Bible says things like, what's it, what's it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? To those who claim to be free, the Bible says sin actually enslaves. To those who think they can see clearly, the Bible says the God of this age blinds us. He's describing, the Bible describes our spiritual condition. So it's a characteristic nature of Christ's preaching to put plainly the spiritual condition of those who do not know God through Christ. So you can use that to discern when you listen to preaching. Because not everybody who stands with the Bible is preaching the Bible. Some people use this as camouflage, and you don't think the enemy is deceptive enough? You know when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, the devil quoted Scripture. So you need to be discerning. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is going to heaven. Jesus told us that. And then this is really important, and maybe the chief characteristic for you to understand accurate, faithful preaching and what you should never listen to again is number three, Jesus preaches Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. You see, all false teaching gets all three of those wrong. All false teaching is rooted in man's opinion, saying lies about God and saying you're more than you think that you are, like you're God. That's the hallmarks of all false teaching. Even if they use spiritual language, and by the way, it's probably wise to say most false teaching uses spiritual language. Jesus, when he stands up in his hometown of Nazareth, uses the scripture, teaches our condition, and proclaims the remedy. You're blind, you need me to help you see. You remember when Jesus was born and laid in that manger, the angels proclaimed glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to man. All false teaching says glory to people in the highest. And we'll have peace with God so long as he does what we say. And that's the false teaching that originated back there in the Garden of Eden. You eat this fruit, you'll be like God. And like most people, if they understand exactly what Jesus is saying, the people there in Nazareth, says in verse 3, they took offense at this. Took offense. It's the Greek word, uh, skandalizomai. They said it's a scandal, oh my. Not, not really, but how I could remember it for the Greek exam, you know, in seminary. Scandalizomai. This is scandalous. Took offense at him. What do they begin to say? Who does he think he is? And uh, let's just, so we're understanding what's going on here. These are not nice questions. Is this not the carpenter's son? And this would say, the son of Mary? Now, this might mean two things. Number one, by this time, Joseph may have passed away. I'll tell you this, if, even if Joseph had passed away, this is telling you in that time and place, they would still refer to him as this, this is just Jesus, son of Joseph, for their understanding, if that makes sense. But when they say, isn't this the son of Mary, what they're saying is, we don't buy that story, that virgin story. Yeah, we know where he came from. It's Mary's son, wink, wink. This is, this man is scandalous. He's not to be, he's just a carpenter. What are they saying? They're astonished at him. It's not because they don't know what he's saying. It's because they do know what he's saying. <laughs> that they take offense. And in essence, in essence, they're saying, who does he think he is? Now, 
most people don't like to be corrected. We don't, do we? Well, that's what Jesus has done. He shows up at Nazareth. He says, a prophet with, is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. What's he saying here? He's saying they're offended because they don't think he's worthy to be in a situation where he can teach and preach to them. Well, friends, I'd say again, we need the loving correction of God. Don't resist the loving correction of God. When was the last time that the Holy Spirit used the Word of God to bring you significant correction? I mean, if you've been going years and years and years and not been confronted lovingly that this needs to change, this sin needs to go, you need to begin to cultivate godlier habits and godlier appetite. We need the correction of God. But what we notice (laughs) from the moment sin enters the world is uh, this strange combination that we don't know what we're talking about and we're really proud of it. We need his correction. Let's get this third point. The power of Jesus is not diminished by unbelief, but it is not displayed in the midst of unbelief. He doesn't do, we're told, verse 5, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. They're astonished at him, (laughs) and he's astonished at them. What's going on here? Did they diminish him? Here's the reality of all criticism of Jesus. It It doesn't affect him and who he really is in his character, but it does reveal who the critic is, the condition of their heart, the condition of their soul. And that's what, make Jesus, that's what makes, one of the many things that makes Jesus uniquely unique is what they say about him, all these cases. Do you not care that we're perishing, the disciples said. Well, yeah, he does care that you're perishing. In fact, that's why he's going to the cross. When they begged him to depart from their region in the garrisons, Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross. I'm laying claim to all my creation to redeem it. Now, their criticism there in Nazareth, when they take offense at him, When they said, isn't he just a carpenter? That doesn't mean he's just a carpenter. It means they believe he's just a carpenter, but that doesn't mean he is just a carpenter. Does that make sense? Now, there is nothing that God cannot do, but there are some things, friends, he will not do. And here's one of them. He will never demonstrate his power in the midst of unbelief or among those who are unbelieving. He doesn't do any mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He marveled because of their unbelief. But notice, they're not going to shove him off course. He went about among the villages teaching, and he's going to keep going. Just do us a magic trick, Jesus. Give us a sign. You're not anybody but a carpenter. And friends, Jesus doesn't work like that. That level of unbelief is significant. The first step required for God to be active and at work in power in your life is humility. Without it, there is no power in your life of God. First step is humility. Jesus has the power to forgive your sins, but whose sins are forgiven? Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is power in the cross. It's what we see. No one's going to knock him off the course. His mission is to seek and save the lost. But in order for you to be saved, you must believe. You must look to him in faith. I mean, think of the privilege that Nazareth has. They had more access to Jesus over time than any other place. But the privilege turned into a barrier. And we need to be listening to this. The privilege turned into a barrier because they were familiar with him but had no faith in him. And the church subculture needs to hear this message. They were so familiar with him, they had no faith in him. So be careful about this. Because right now in the world, if you were to discern who has the most access 
to the holy things of God, you'd be hard-pressed to find anywhere on planet Earth that has greater access to the gospel than Rocky Mount, North Carolina does right here, right now. And not only in the generation you live, but ever. But no mighty work was done among them. Because they said, well, this is the carpenter's son. And he just nice little, polite, well-mannered, Jesus. No, he's the king. He's the king. And in your own life right now, I'm using his words now, quoting Isaiah, you're a captive to the extent of your unbelief. You are a prisoner to the extent of your unbelief. Nazareth has great privilege. Think about this. Nazareth had more privilege than any other place, but less power displayed than any other place. Was that a Jesus problem? No. That's a Nazareth problem. He could do no mighty work there, not because he lacked might, but why? They lacked belief. They're hardened in their approach to him. They took offense at him. Who does he think he is? Here's who he thinks he is. Here's who he knows he is. He's the king. And what I'd like to do is contrast this homecoming with another homecoming in Scripture. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Mark said that the disciples went with him to Nazareth, so uh, the apostle John was with him when he went to Nazareth. And then the Apostle John was given a marvelous privilege to see this other homecoming. And we'll contrast the two. This is Jesus in heaven, where he's really from. (laughs) And it says in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, seven bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth and I looked and I heard the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Can you contrast Nazareth and the throne in glory? Stark contrast, isn't it? And the application is clear. Just look at your life. Just look at your life and say, I'm more Nazareth, familiar, but no faith, and therefore no power. You know what I love about the scene in the book of Revelation? Just never got over it. Just never got over it. 
they never will get over it in glory. This is a good question for the condition of our souls this morning. Nazareth had a posture. It was kind of like this. Let's use a posture. Kind of like this. He stood up there and read a scroll. And at first they were like this. And then when it became clear to them, he was saying, you're a captive. You're oppressed. But I've come to set you at liberty. It went from this to like this. Who do you think you are? He loves you. He's come to free you. He's come to redeem you. Now, now you look in Revelation chapter 5, and those angels, myriads and myriads and myriads of thousands and thousands and thousands, is their posture like this? Or, or when's this service going to be, you know? <laughs> and they're on their faces. When's the last time you saw Jesus in such a way that you were on your face before him? And you're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. It underscores the great humility of Jesus that he came from there and went there. Do you know what I mean? And he's there knowing, hey, it's not long before I'm going to be there. So as long as I'm here, you know what? Here's an application for our lives. As long as I'm here, I'm going to be able to endure the criticism. I'm going to be able to endure the misunderstanding. I'm going to be able to endure the people got my motives wrong or they said about this. I'm not going to waste my life trying to track down everything that was said about me. That's not true. Man, if you're a captive that's been set free, that's one of the things you can be liberated from. You can love and serve people who don't understand your loving and serving them right or well. You don't have to get your feelings hurt so easily. Because you know why a lot of people quit? Because of criticism. I'm so sick of being criticized, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. Well, friends, no. By God's grace, we're going to be around the throne. It's not going to be long. It's not going to be long. And I aim to be there, full of faith, saying he is worthy. He is worthy. I do not want to waste my life with a heart that looks like Nazareth. You know, initially, they weren't uh, rude to Jesus. I mean, they gathered to worship at the synagogue week after week after week after week. But they didn't really know Jesus. Heaven has never gotten over what Jesus has done. He's worthy. Nobody else could do it. So now we examine our life. To have a heart more like Nazareth, full of unbelief, or a heart like heaven, full of gratitude, worship, and praise. Is your heart more... Who does he think he is? Or to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You know, one of the things then when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, um, <laughs> I think the Bible bears this out. There, there are two ways to live in unbelief. Adrian Rogers would put it this way. I I like this quote. He says, uh, There are none so bad they cannot be saved, nor none so good they need not be saved. Another example of that is Luke 15, the parable of the father with two sons. One was a rule keeper, and he did everything that was right. His homework was always turned in on time. He was moral, and he, in his own sight, was righteous. And then his younger son, who went to a far country and squandered his property in reckless living, right? So so those of us who've been born again, you can probably look back on your life and just say, what was the barrier? That you thought you'd gone too far and done too much that God would ever redeem and rescue you? Or you sat in your own righteousness. Now, I was the latter. I was the boy growing up when we went to the first day of school and the teacher went over the rules. I got out my notes and I, I mean, I got out my paper and I took notes. And they said, you have to raise your hand before you speak. Last thing in the world I was ever going to do was speak without raising my hand. I mean, just a rule follower. I thought, I thought a good, righteous, moral, well-mannered, well-behaved person. But God took delight, you know what I'm saying, of his word and shined into that heart of mine that was hard-hearted, like Nazareth, familiar with Jesus. I read the little children's Bible growing up. Went to Sunday school. I could probably pass a Bible quiz, you know. 
Ask me a question about the Bible, I can tell you what it said. But my heart was dead to God. Moral? Dead. (laughs) You know one of the things that God used to draw me to Jesus was what we're talking about today. Do you see him? Leaving glory to come live here. Why? Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. I said, I, I'll go. <laughs> I'll go. I'll be born. Now, I know they say, I've got no room for you here. They'll lay me in a manger. And friends, just truth be told, just truth be told, if that were it, if that's what the Bible revealed to us about Jesus, that would be astonishing, wouldn't it? That he is humble enough to leave glory and come to earth and as a baby lay him in a manger that's so disrespectful seeming, right? I mean, he's the king. He's the one that all things were made through him, and yet he takes on human flesh and comes into his baby. That would be amazing. But he was born as a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what was revealed about him is he didn't just come and say, okay, I'll bide my time for 30 years in Nazareth and I'll put up with people. No, no, no. He came to his own. His own received him not. And as we keep going through the gospel of Mark, where is he going? They're going to take him to Calvary. And nobody's taking his life from him. Let's just be clear on that. He said, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Why? Because you're a captive. You know, part of being spiritually blind is, even as he's redeeming people, they hurl insults at him. And what does he do? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. If you think you've gone too far and God could never forgive you, you listen to Jesus as he's being nailed to the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. How can God the Father forgive you for your sins? Jesus is nailed to the cross to pay for it. That's how. It's the only way. It's not a good way. It's not one of a few ways. It's the way his blood shed for you. He said, man, I quit. I walked out. Guess what? He didn't quit, and he walked in. See, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They understand it fully in heaven, what he's done. That's why they don't get over it. In conclusion, I'm asking you, has God ever worked in a way in your life that you've just never gotten over it? It is the anchor of your soul. Now, let's be cautious and careful. You don't want to be like Nazareth where you're familiar but unbelieving. And I would tell you, you live in a generation. You live in a generation where if you're familiar, it's concluded that you're believing. And that's not so. How do you know? Power. Power. Power that comes, and you were a captive, and now you'd say, The power of God has set me free. Here's the chains that used to be binding me and my sin, and here's what I was overcome by, but Jesus has set me free. Because God is so good, God is so good, He lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. God will let some good things come in your life, just like in Nazareth. He healed a few people, He did a few things. But I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this, there's a eternal difference between God doing a few things that just let your life be a little bit better and he brought you from death to life is your heart who does he think he is or I know who he is and I'd say worthy is the lamb who was slain we're going to enter a time of invitation just a few things about the invitation we do give a public invitation Because we believe in a publicly crucified Savior. We believe in a publicly resurrected Savior. We believe one who publicly went back to glory. And we believe that he is coming back soon in power and glory for everybody to see. So the invitation is open. What we do is we're going to stand, we're going to sing. And the point of an invitation is to respond, right? What was the response in Nazareth that day? Skandaledzomai. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? Today, the invitation is this. Maybe for the first time in your life, two things have been revealed to you. One, you realize, I am a captive. I am blind. Isaiah prophesied it. Jesus quoted it. It's true. Man, I'm dead spiritually. But here's the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit reveals that truth to you, always bring a a companion truth. I'm dead. 
but Jesus can make me alive. I'm dead, but Jesus has been crucified for my sin, and I want to believe on him so that I can live. Second, this passage helps us have a service check. I mean, are we serving like Jesus? Or have we gotten a little too grumbly in our soul, saying, well, I'm not appreciated enough. I'm not esteemed enough. Or I'll start serving when I can get to a little bit more glamorous position. Jesus said, that's how the world is. It's not so among you. The Gentiles lord it over who's in charge, but the greatest among you will be a servant. He demonstrated that when he washed the disciples' feet, right? And, of course, when he was crucified. So I'm going to invite you to stand right now. And we're going to pray and enter our time of invitation and response. If you've got a burden on your heart, your soul this morning, you say, I really would like to pray with somebody, I'm going to stand right here. If God is doing a salvation work in your heart, stand right here. You want to talk about it, pray about it. Say, I believe God's calling me from death to life. Be my joy, my privilege to receive you here. Also welcome to come and just approach the throne of grace. Wonderful thing about Jesus is he's done a work in such a way that uh, there's no barrier between you and the Lord in Christ. So you can come to the front. You've got a concern, a burden you want to pray for. I always encourage you every week, the only thing we don't do during invitation is nothing. Don't be like the Nazarenes in that day. Be open to what he's saying. Father, I do thank you for Jesus. I do thank you that one has come, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he has set at liberty the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Lord, I pray you would do a work among us that collectively it would be able to be said of Calvary Baptist Church. They're more like those around the throne in Revelation 5 than the scene we see in Mark 6. Lord, I don't want to live a life where you do a few things. I want to live a life where you work in power for the glory of your own name. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's not a quitter. I thank you that uh, we esteemed him not. But he's never knocked off course to go to Calvary to pay for our sins. So uh, by your grace and by your spirit, help our invitation time. Even as we sing, that we have a little bit of Revelation 5 in us. Say how great you are and worthy is your name. Lead us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. splendor of a king clothed in majesty let all the earth rejoice all the earth rejoice he wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide and tremble at his voice trembles at his voice how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and all will see how great how great is our God
the lamb who is slain. There's a few things before we go. Uh, first of all, I just want to say that uh, sometimes not everything that needs to be done can be done in the allotment of an invitation at the end of a, of a service. Uh, so, so that's not, when we have it, we do have a public invitation, but I don't ever want that to come across as uh, well, this is the time to do it, and the only time. Now, sometimes it is urgent, and you do need to respond quickly, but it's just my way of giving an invitation. If there's Anybody that you say, I just got some questions. I am more this right now than this, but I'd like to talk to somebody about it. It'd be our joy to do that. It'd be my privilege anytime with anybody at any place. Uh, I know I can speak for, on behalf of all of our pastors and many people who love the Lord in this church. It'd be our joy to, uh, to do that. So as, as near as a phone call and an email, near as standing right here at the end of the service, are you just coming up and say, can we, can we talk sometime this week? It'd be my, it'd be my privilege uh, to do that. We're going to pray. We'll be back here tonight for our uh, evening service. It'll be the second week of our study with David Platt, Something's Got to Change. Uh, and just on that note, those of us who were here last Sunday night for that, it was a huge blessing. Can I come to the second week if I didn't make it to the first? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jump right in with us where we are tonight. Um, as uh, as we we'll again, accurate teaching straight from the scripture about the human condition and about who Jesus really is. So we'll pray together before we go. Father, I do thank you for Jesus. I do thank you for Jesus. And every time he draws near, it's for our good. Sometimes it's a loving confrontation, and that's exactly what we need. Because we're headed in the wrong direction. We're close to quitting, or we have quit in the ways that really matter in life. I thank you that Jesus is a restorer and a healer. He is a redeemer. And Jesus always knows what needs to be torn out, and cast aside and what needs to be repaired. 
Thank you that he's fully trustworthy. So, Father, we pray this week that we serve like Jesus serves. We love like Jesus loves. We, there's not places we say we're too good to go. No, we serve a Savior who went to Nazareth, went to unglamorous places because he loves people. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you give us hearts like his that are quick to love and speak the truth and be faithful. Don't let anything knock us off the course of our mission, which is to proclaim what Jesus has done. Thank you that nothing could prevent him from accomplishing your will at Calvary. Give us joy in our salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.